If you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the pews in front of you. You can reach down, grab one of those out. I don't actually know the page number, but there is a table of contents. And so you can look at the table of contents and turn with us over to Luke chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you can take that Bible home with you. Merry Christmas. It's a gift from us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time that we could spend together pondering, celebrating together the mystery of the incarnation. And we ask, oh God, that this morning you would increase our wonder, that you would stir our hearts with love for you, and that you draw forth our deepest worship that you'd open our minds as we open up your word, and that you'd speak and that you'd make us attentive. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. So I've always loved nativity scenes. Anybody else here love like nativity scenes, nativity sets? I like them. I like them on parades and on lawns. I like bathrobe pageants. I like Christmas cards. I like uh, living nativity sets, especially if they have uh, a camel. Remember years ago going to the glory of Christmas? Has anybody ever been out there at the Crystal Cathedral and seen one of those camels come into the worship space? And I keep praying that somebody in this church would get us a camel for Christmas Eve. Remember years ago, my mother-in-law had a, a really cool Fisher-Price Christmas uh, nativity set, and it was kind of cool because it had all the different figurines, and the kids could kind of play with it. And I remember our girls were over there, and they were playing with the little sets, and I was thinking it was so great because they were entering imaginatively into, you know, the first Christmas. And we were about ready to leave, and my mother-in-law said, oh, would you girls like to take it home with you? And so they said, yeah, that'd be fantastic. And so we packed it up, and uh, we start heading out the door, and uh, my mother-in-law says, wait, 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 you forgot the three little pigs. And I thought, isn't that from a different story, you know? Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, and I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down, you know? And, and I thought, and, and then I thought, what are, what are pigs doing in the living quarters of a young Jewish family? You know, and I had to take my girls home. I was fresh out of seminary, and we had to sit down and talk about the social and cultural milieu of first century Palestinian life. It's hard being a pastor's daughter. But you know, uh, sometimes our nativity sets can sometimes give us a sanitized, maybe a commercialized, maybe a sentimentalized picture of the first Christmas. And I think sometimes our familiarity with these stories, with hearing these again and again, with seeing them depicted in so many ways and shapes and forms, we can continue to hear the story, but not really hear the story. We can listen, but not really listen. Or maybe we've heard it so much that we stop hearing it, you know? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to stand, is I want us to kind of enter afresh into the story of Christmas. And I want to do that by calling your attention to a little phrase that caught my attention a while back when I was reading through this story. And it's from uh, Luke chapter 2, and it's from the section where the, sh- the angels appear to the shepherds. And look at what it says in verse 8. It says, and in the same region there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord 
appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And you can just hear Linus reading it, can't you? Remember hearing it back when I was a kid, thinking they were so afraid that they were sore. You know, they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And here's what caught my attention, this verse, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And the word that caught my attention is that word highlighted, the word sign. He says, and this is going to be a sign for you. You're going to find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, what is a sign anyway? What is a sign? I mean, think for a moment, back in the uh, ancient world, back in the world of the Bible, in fact, in the Bible itself, the word sign is often used to refer to an unusual, spectacular, maybe miraculous happening that pointed to something of incredible significance. And for example, uh, in the Old Testament story of Exodus, Moses is given a sign to show Pharaoh. And what is his sign? Well, he takes a staff in to confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I'm not listening to you. And he throws the staff on the sign and the staff becomes a snake. And, and you know, the magicians around him go, whoa, you know. And what is it? It's something unusual, spectacular, and miraculous. And it's to point to the reality that Moses is a messenger from God. In the Gospels, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus at one point and they say, show us a sign. And what are they asking for? They're asking for something unusual, something spectacular and miraculous that would prove that Jesus is who he said he was. A little bit later in the, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about signs that would accompany the second coming. And he refers to these spectacular, these unusual happenings that would point to his soon return. And here he uses the word sign and notice what it refers to. He says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, how is that a sign? Now, I would think that a magnificent choir, an army of angels appearing out in a field to these poor shepherds would be sign enough, right? But that's not the sign he's talking about. Here he talks about this other sign that they will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And the question that I want us to explore together is how is that a sign? And if it is a sign, what's it intended to point to? And to answer that question, we need to kind of go back into the story and look at where it begins in verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now stop there. So the story begins with Joseph taking his pregnant wife, Mary, on a long journey down from Nazareth in the north all the way down to Bethlehem. Now why is he doing this? 
Well, uh, here's a, a Google map of the journey from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. According to Google Maps, it's 90 miles, and it's two and a half hours by car. But Joseph and Mary were not in a car, right? They were in a motorcycle. <laughs> they were almost certainly walking on foot. And so it raises the question, why on earth would any husband take their pregnant, their very pregnant wife, on a 90-mile journey on foot on dangerous dirt roads? Well, the answer is, is because in verse 1, it says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who is Caesar? Well, Caesar is the ruler. He is the king. He is the head of the largest power, the largest military force the world had ever seen. And Israel was an occupied territory. They were being ruled over by this foreign military power. And Caesar wants to get an accurate count on his tax base. And why does he want that? Well, because if he doesn't have an accurate count of his tax base, he won't be able to properly tax his people. And if he can't do that, he can't fund his budget. And if he can't do that, then he's going to have to shut down the government. Actually, he won't do that. But he won't be able to fund the military that's continuing to oppress the people. And so Joseph against everything inside of him that would want to do something else, has to take his pregnant wife on a 90-mile journey on foot because he is a politically oppressed, economically poor person, and he has no other option. And so he goes on this long journey. Now, we imagine, I think in popular imagination, that uh, when he gets there, that Joseph, you know, it's about dusk, and Mary starts to go into labor, and he starts frantically looking around for an, a, a, a proper place for his wife to give birth to this child, and he goes to inn after inn after inn, and at each place we imagine some mean-spirited innkeeper saying, no, there's no room for you here, go away, you know, and then he goes off to the next place, and then finally he has to wander out to some cave or some tumble-down stable where Mary is able to give birth. But I want you to see in the text that in contrast to how we play this out in popular imagination and in a lot of our nativity stories, that the biblical text is actually very scant in the language that it gives to describe the birth. All it says is this, verse 7, or verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And the first thing that catches our attention is that it was while they were there, while they were where? In Bethlehem. She came to full term and it gave time to give birth. So this wasn't a last minute thing that they're looking for a place to stay at dusk. She's not in labor as they're walking into Bethlehem. Rather, this is after they had been there for a bit and she comes to full term and then it says that she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him, for them in the inn. Now let's talk for a minute about this word inn. Now, spoiler alert, if you have manger scenes at home, I may mess them up. So if you want to hold on to your original ideas about mangers, you might want to leave. 
except for I just locked the door. There's two different words in the Gospel of Luke and actually in the New Testament that are translated as in. And one of them almost always means a public in. Now, in the first century, in ancient Palestine, public inns were very, very rare. And they were very rare because it was a culture marked first and foremost by hospitality. And so, inns were very rare. And if they did exist, they were typically in major cities on main thoroughfares. And the word used that's, that's used uh, from Greek, translated into inn, is... I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I can't, but there it is. Isn't it interesting looking? It's the first one. It's like pandokeon or something. Did I say, I'm looking at Luther back there. Come on, my Greek people. Shout it out. Yes, he said it gives me a thumbs up. But this is translated as in, in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when the Samaritan is taken from the side of the road and he's taken to an inn and the, the, the Good Samaritan pays the fare. The other word... Cataluma is the word that's used in Luke 2 here. And it's translated later in Luke's gospel as guest room, which is actually the more common translation. And so Luke knows the term for publican. He doesn't use that here. Instead, he uses the word that's translated more often as guest room. In fact, in uh, Syriac and in Arabic translations of the New Testament, they never translate this word as in. They always translate it as guest quarters or guest room. Now, it's almost certainly the case that what it's referring to is a section on a first century Palestinian peasant home. And so this is kind of a, a remake or a replica. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for, a remake. That's what they do with movies. This is a replica of a first century Palestinian home. Uh, from the outside looking in, it's a very small kind of peasant home. It usually had two main compartments. And so down, maybe on a lower section of the home, there was a small space with typically a dirt floor where a lot of the family work would occur. Usually at night, they would bring in animals to protect them from theft and also to add warmth to the house. In that lower station where the animals were brought uh, was also where they would work and they would also typically have some sort of a, of a manger there, a feeding trough that was made of stone to feed these animals. And so there's maybe a more close-up version of that. Whereas upstairs was typically a space that would be reserved for guests. Now in this occasion, remember Caesar had called for a census and so there was all kinds of travelers on the road. It's almost certainly the case that the, the size of Bethlehem swelled because of the many travelers that came in. And probably the houses were taken and people had their guest quarters filled. And so when Mary and Joseph maybe go to one of Joseph's ancestral, uh, they go to his ancestral home, probably has family members there. And he goes to stay with one of them, and there's no room up in the guest quarters. So instead, he has to go downstairs and sleep where uh, the animals were kept, and probably in something that looked like this. This is actually an ancient, uh, or an ancient ruin for, of a uh, first century manger. 
Somebody was so upset with me after the first service. They said, you know, all of my mangers are made of wood. Do I have to replace it with a stone one? And I said, well, if you love Jesus and the Bible, you will. But (laughs) if you don't... So I think the picture that we get here in Luke chapter 2 is of Mary and Joseph coming into Bethlehem, the home of Joseph's. He's got some, probably some relatives there. They open up their house for them to come in, but they already have guests upstairs. Hospitality in the first century would have been unheard of to kick your previous guests out and allow somebody else to sleep up there. So then instead they would be put downstairs, which was very normal, very common. And it was in that downstairs section that Mary goes into labor and she gives birth. Now, the picture that should start to develop in your mind of the setting of this birth is very small, very cramped, very crowded quarters. It's dirty, it's unsanitary, and there are all kinds of guests around. And when you are crying out in labor, women, there is not a lot of sound barrier. It is stark, and there are no medical professionals. Now, I think for most of us, when we read about this setting, we would think only under the most unusual and terrible set of circumstances would I ever allow my wife to give birth in a circumstance like this. I remember uh, years ago when my wife went into labor with our second daughter, Mia. We were on our way to the hospital, And we were in um, our 1982 Mercedes-Benz. It was an old diesel. My mother-in-law was driving. I was in the passenger seat. My wife was in the back. And while we were on our way to the uh, hospital, my wife was in uh, her, uh, she was in transition. And her body started to push. And she was in the back and she said, I'm starting to push, I can't stop it. And I just jumped in the back. I had had Bradley classes, which is husband, coach, childbirth. I jumped in the back, I said, honey, don't worry, coach is here. <laughs> I didn't say that, actually, I was crying. I, was, I don't know what to do, you know. <laughs> but we think only as a result of the, the worst kind of circumstances would we ever allow our spouse to give birth in a place like this. But you know what the shepherds would have thought when they heard this? They would have said, that's the kind of circumstance that I was born into. That's how everybody is born. Now, why is this a sign to them? And what is it a sign of? Well, I want to suggest that it's a sign of at least three things. Number one, it is a sign that points first to the solidarity of God to the solidarity of God. Now, I'm sure when they heard about the birth of a Savior and a Lord, because that's what the angel said, who was the Savior and Lord in the first century? It was Caesar. Caesar was given that title. He was the Savior and Lord. Now, if the Savior and Lord is Caesar and he's born, what kind of, he's not born like a peasant. He's not born in one of these cramped little quarters. He's born in the palace. And they heard this and they thought, what? He's entering into the very circumstance of life that I'm in. And here is the wonder of Christmas. 
is that the eternal God comes into our world, he enters into humanity, and he doesn't enter into the upper echelon. He doesn't become a part of the 1%. Instead, he goes all the way down to the peasant class, and he enters and he's born into a peasant class family who is suffering underneath political and economic oppression, and who has to make all kinds of decisions that ruin their life and put them in great harm's way because they are powerless. And this is what God enters into. Do you see the solidarity of the eternal God with people who are at the very bottom rung of the social ladder? When um, my wife gave birth to our third daughter, Lucy, it's, I guess it was Christmas. I'm thinking about births, so I'm thinking about the <laughs> different children. My, but, um, you know, she had had two natural childbirths, and she decided that for our third child, she actually wanted to get an epidural. And so, uh, because Mia, our previous one, who almost was born in the car, came so early, uh, we decided to get to the hospital a little bit early. And when we got there, she had already progressed quite far. She was, I don't know, she, had, she, was, she was progressing just fine. And so we get in there, and the nurse calls our doctor, and the doctor says, give her Pitocin. And my wife goes, I'm progressing just fine. I don't need Pitocin. And he said, no, no, tell her she needs to get Pitocin. And my wife's like, I, can we just wait a little bit and see if I stop progressing because Pitocin makes this worse. And the doctor's like, tell her, give her, take Pitocin or you have to leave. And so we left. And we went downstairs for about an hour and a half and my wife labored for an hour and a half downstairs in the lobby. We came back upstairs and uh, by that time, she was almost fully dilated and ready to give birth. And then they called the doctor, and uh, my wife said, well, can I get an epidural? He said, no, you've progressed too fast, and you left. Now, in that moment, I thought, this is a man who has never gone through labor. <laughs> he had no idea what she was going through. You know, sometimes we might imagine, what does God know? God knows. God has entered into humanity. He has shared in our humanity. He has shared in the suffering of humanity. He has entered into solidarity with humanity so that he might lift us up with himself. You know, years ago, or a few years back, I, I read a, a little philosophy book by a French philosopher named Luc Ferry a very well-known French philosopher, and he wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. And he's got a section in that book on Christianity, and in his section on Christianity, he begins like this. He says, you know, he said, when I graduated with a PhD in philosophy, it was still possible to earn a PhD in philosophy and know next to nothing about Christianity. By the way, he's a secular humanist. And he said, and, and I don't want you to make that same mistake. He said, it's impossible to understand the Western world that we inhabit today apart from the growth and spread of Christianity. He said, Christianity changed Western culture. And he said, there was two ideas that Christianity introduced into Western culture. One was the equality of all humanity. He said, prior to the emergence of Christianity, he said, that just didn't exist. 
He said the Greco-Roman world was an aristocratic society. There were people that by virtue of their birth, they were on top, and other people by virtue of who they were, they were just on bottom, and that's just the way it was. And he says the other notion that entered into human history at the time was, was the idea of humanism, of, of humanity, that, that humanity actually had worth and dignity by virtue of being created in the image of God. And all humanity, no matter which station of life you were in, you shared in this equal humanity. And he said this came into the world through the doctrine of the incarnation. The idea that God actually took on the humanity of not the aristocrats, but of the poor, thereby entering into solidarity with them. And do you know how practical this is? My wife was in Kenya a couple weeks ago, and she was listening to a Kenyan pastor preach to a group of boys who grew up on the slums of Nairobi. And he said, these kids, they are looked down upon because of where they're from. They are nobodies from nowhere. And this guy said, boys, you need to know Jesus was a nobody from nowhere. People looked at him and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he says, God has entered into humanity. And this, this is at the very heart of Christmas. It is God's solidarity with the poor. Jesus said at one point in the Gospels, he said, inasmuch as you've done it to the, re- the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. He says, if you feed the poor, if you clothe the poor, if you visit the poor, if you visit those who are in prison, he says, it's like you're doing it to me because that's the kind of solidarity I have with them. You know, I think in our, in our American culture that is so marked by culture wars, Christians often at this time of year start getting up in arms because when we're out in public, you know, people are saying we can't have nativity scenes out in the public anymore and we can't say... Merry Christmas, instead we have to say, you know, that innocuous, benign, you know, happy holidays. We say, we should say Merry Christmas, you know. And listen, I get that. You know, I was in church a while back and somebody came, came up to me and they said, you know, uh, happy holidays, pastor. I said, come on, man, live a little. You know, the ACLU isn't going to get you here. You're in church. You can say Merry Christmas. But listen, I think oftentimes what we want is we want to continue on in our same consumer-oriented lifestyle, materialistic as the rest of our culture, ignoring the needs and the plight of the poorest in this world, and yet have our nativity sets and our Merry Christmas around and feel validated in our life. And that's not how we celebrate Christmas. To celebrate Christmas is to move in solidarity with those who are further down on the social status ladder. This is what God has done. And so number one, this sign is a sign that points this birth of a little baby, a vulnerable baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lighted in a manger. It's a sign that points to the solidarity of God. But secondly, it doesn't only point to the solidarity of God. It also points to the nearness of God. I can just imagine these shepherds when they hear this news, you know, a Savior, a Lord, he's born, go see him. And they probably thought, wait a second, how are we ever going to get to see him? You know, I can remember uh, years ago, my, my brother and some friends and I were up camping in Santa Barbara. It was the early 90s, and we had heard that 
President Reagan's ranch was up in Santa Barbara. And so we hopped in a truck and we went and we kind of drove around the hills. We were looking for Reagan's ranch and we found it. And we thought, we're going to go there and we're going to go in and say hello to the, the former president. We were young. <laughs> you can't get in to see a president like that. You got to get past the gates and the guards and you need the proper identification and the codes and the guys with the machine guns are just not going to let anyone by. And I'm sure they thought this, how are we going to get all the way up? You know, we peasants, how are we going to get into the palace to see the king? And what this is a sign of, no, 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 no. You will find this king not with the wealthy but with the poor. You'll find this king not in the palace but among the peasants. You see, this is a king you don't have to climb up to find. This is a king who has left the palace to come in among peasants to be near you. Christianity is about God's descent into humanity to be near us so that we might ultimately be brought near to God. What drives him into that? It is love. It is the passionate, the personal love of God. God loves creation. God loves this broken world. And so he comes in among us so that we might be brought near to God. You might be here the, this morning, maybe you were brought in to church by somebody else, maybe they promised you that they're going to buy you breakfast afterwards, and you were reading the paper or something this morning, and they said, come to church with us, this is what we do on Sunday morning, you're like, all right, you know, and you're here, and you think, oh, you know, yeah, I'm not one of these religious people, I'm not good enough, I'm not morally upright enough. Listen, Christianity is not about you climbing some kind of moral or religious ladder to get up to God. Christianity at its very heart is about a God who descends the ladder to come down to us and be near us and to be with us and to be for us so that we might be made near God. He said, this is a sign. You're going to find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger in a same peasant birth. This is a king who's come among you. So number one, this is a sign that points us to the solidarity of God. Secondly, this is a sign that points us to the nearness of God. But thirdly and finally, I want you to see that this is a sign that points us to the self-sacrifice of God. What New Testament scholars, many will point out about Luke's gospel, and particularly about this phrase that he uses, Let's say at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he talks about Jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. In fact, this is almost the sole language used to describe the birth of Jesus, and it's, the statement is used twice. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then after he was born, it says that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she lied him in a manger. And the language used to describe what happens to the vulnerable baby of Jesus at the beginning of the gospel is repeated at the end of the gospel when it describes what happens to the vulnerable, now dead body of Jesus. It is wrapped in grave clothes and it's lying in a tomb. 
And many commentators suspect that Luke wants his readers to see in this sign at the beginning of the life of Jesus something that points ahead to the end of the life of Jesus, namely the vulnerable baby that was wrapped and had to be laid down will be the vulnerable grown Jesus who was put to death at the hands of Rome and wrapped up and laid in a tomb. You know, I don't want you to get the wrong idea from what I'm saying this morning. When I talk about God being near to us and being in solidarity with us, I'm not trying to say that God is just like us. In fact, the the main adjective throughout the Old Testament that is used to describe God is the word holy. Holy. And it essentially means different. It means utterly different, completely transcendent. So unlike everything else you and I see in the world around us. In fact, there's a scene in the Old Testament after Israel's been rescued from Egypt God gives them the famous Ten Commandments and the leaders of Israel go up to Mount Sinai and it says that they saw the God of Israel. And as we're reading the story, we're hoping, of course, for a description of what they saw. And Moses says that under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky. And then it stops. And we don't get anything else. After seeing the God of Israel, all that Moses could convey was the pavement underneath his feet. It's so hard to describe God or even talk about God without saying something totally bizarre or untrue or stupid. God is so wholly other. He is so beautifully different. He is so glorious and transcendent. He's so impossible to describe. He's so powerful and mighty. He's the commander of heaven's armies. He's the cosmic ruler. He's the glue that holds the universe together. He has infinite strength and infinite might and infinite wisdom and everlasting light. The tongue gets stuck in the mouth trying to convey the God who is holy. And here in the little town of Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph wrap up this little baby in swaddling clothes, this vulnerable baby, and lie him in a manger. Holiness enfleshed, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And at the end of his life, they take the dead body of Jesus, wrap it up in grave clothes, and lay it in the tomb. Holiness enfleshed, Holiness embrace of death, the infinite entering into the finite, the immortal entering into mortality, the eternal life embracing death. Why? Not because we're so wonderful, not because we're so important. You know, we as humans are a speck living on a speck of a planet, rotating in a speck of a solar system that's taking its place in a speck of a galaxy in this vast universe. So why did the eternal God take on human flesh? Why did life embrace death? Love. The heartbeat of God is infinite eternal, 
and passionate love. I want to close this morning by reading you a a little section from a 20th century author named C.S. Lewis. I'd like to invite our band to come up at this time. And in just a minute, we're going to close together by sharing in the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, I just want to read to you this section. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, the central miracle of Christianity is the incarnation. And he says this. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and the seabed of nature that he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the ruined world up with him. One is the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or he says this, one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, running down through the green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. And this is the eternal God who makes the great descent from eternal heaven into earth so that he might enter into humanity and death and sin and darkness, fully break its power and throw us on his back so that we, all of us, can be brought back and ascend with him to full acceptance, full love, full relationship with God. And that is very good news.